Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our text this morning is from Malachi chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 10 through 16. These are the words of God. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it and to hear from it this morning. Bless the preaching of your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and believing hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, when I, uh, we are continuing on in the book of Malachi. When I have the opportunity to preach here, we've been working through uh, different passages through this last prophet in the Old Testament. So if you're looking for Malachi in your Bible, uh, I would encourage you to have your Bibles open as we go through this. But Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. It's a short book that concludes, and it's the final prophet concluding God's word to his people, uh, and then is followed by a period of 400 years of silence until uh, we begin the gospel accounts. And as we, have, we are going through this, we come now to uh, what, is the, what is considered the central section of Malachi's prophecy. You can take the whole book of Malachi and break it down into a chiasm. We've, as, I've, as we've been looking at Malachi, we've talked a good deal about chiasms. And the purpose of looking at things through a chiastic lens is to see the structure of a passage. Uh, authors will use chiasms in order to draw attention to a particular point. It might not be the only point to be made from the passage, and most, most often it's not, but it might be a central point, and it, they want to draw your attention to it. The whole book of Malachi is structured as a chiasm, and this uh, section, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, is the center of that chiasm. And so we should see this as, in some ways, a summary or uh, something which encapsulates pretty much everything that Malachi is talking about in this book. The prophet has made clear that the infidelity uh, has, been, has made clear that the Jews have been unfaithful to their God and, and the high hypocrisy that they have had after they have returned from exile in Babylon. So Malachi would be a contemporary prophet to Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the historical books that talk about the Jews coming back from exile in Babylon. Having come back, they are still, uh, they, they fall back into great infidelity and high hypocrisy. This is what Malachi calls out. They have despised God's special love for them. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. 
They, led by the priests, have despised God's name and profaned his altar. To the extent that God says in uh, chapter 1, verse 10, that I have no pleasure in you. This is what he says to this people that he has called out. The priests then, Malachi goes on and, and describes how the priests have betrayed the covenant of life and peace that God made specifically with Levi and have caused the people to stumble along with them. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. And so then we come to the center of this prophecy. And at this point, the Lord adds charges against his people that summarize or encapsulate everything that he has brought against them thus far. And so as we look at this passage, I want to uh, highlight for you a couple of things in the structure of this particular passage, and then we'll move on into discussing the passage more in detail. So first, this center of the chiasm of Malachi contains two main charges against Judah. Uh, Judah is particularly named, um, also as mentioned, Israel and Jerusalem, and this is just to, uh, these are all words for um, the whole people. It's interesting here that Malachi has gone from particularly targeting the priests up to this point, and now he turns and he addresses Judah. It's as though he's addressing the whole people at this point. Judah has committed an abomination in marrying the daughter of a foreign god, verses 10 through 12. This is the first charge that the Lord brings against Judah. Secondly, Judah has also mistreated and divorced the wife of his youth, verses 13 through 16. Um, this section itself, we said the whole book can be seen as a chiasm, but this section, uh, verses 10 through 16, itself can be seen as a chiasm. Uh, so I want to point that out to you. Uh, you should have this in your sermon notes, and you can follow along as well there. So take the first two outward sections, verses 11, 10 and 11. Uh, we summarize that by saying that Judah's treachery to the marriage covenant. Judah's treachery to the marriage covenant. He's betrayed this covenant that he has made uh, with uh, someone that he has married. And then uh, the parallel section, A prime, God hates the, this treachery to the marriage covenant. This is where the Lord says that he hates divorce. Uh, moving in from that, section B, God says he, or Malachi prays that God will cut them off, will cut Judah off because of their hypocrisy. Um, the word there for cut off is also the same word that's used to make a covenant. Um, in Hebrew, the, the word means to cut a covenant, or you could translate it literally to cut a covenant, and it makes a lot of sense with the act of circumcision, um, which, is, which was the sign of the covenant with God and his people. And so it's, there's a little bit of irony here that uh, God has said he has cut a covenant with Judah, and now he's saying that because of Judah's infidelity, he's going to cut him off. He's going to cut him away from this covenant that he has made with his people. Uh, this parallels B prime verse 15, which says that God designed marriage to produce godly seed. If Judah is going to be cut off, he's also being cut off from the future, from that which brings the, from the future blessings that God showers upon faithful generations. God is going to cut Judah off, but also this is because God designed marriage to produce godly seed. There is great blessing that comes from that faithfulness. And then in the center of, when we look at this passage as a whole, the center here says, verses 13 and 14, the Lord will not acknowledge the offering. He will no longer receive the offering because he is witness to the marriage covenant. They've broken covenant, they've broken the marriage covenant, and because of that, God will not receive their offerings. 
Um, there's also a, another chiasm we can see in verses 13 through 16, which highlights a similar thing, but uh, another point to another emphasis. Verse, uh, verse 13 parallels with verse 16. Judah has covered the Lord's altar with tears, and so God does not receive the offering. And A prime, the Lord hates divorce, and it covers marriage with violence. You have the parallel of coverings. God, God's altar has been covered with tears, and the marriage covenant has been covered with violence. Going in from that, verse 14 and 15, in the second half of verse 15, Judah has dealt treacherously with the wife of his youth, and there's an exhortation, let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. And then right in the center of this, we see, uh, again, the Lord instituted marriage because he seeks a godly seed. He seeks godly offspring. So those are some of the emphases, that the fact that God will not acknowledge the offering anymore, and this uh, view of God instituting marriage because he seeks a godly seed. These are some of the main points that I want to draw out as we look at this passage in more detail. So we're done with the really technical part. You can all wake back up now and, uh, and, and follow along. No, but so I'll just throw this in there as an aside. Remember that chi- the, the purpose of looking at chiasms is because we do believe that God's word is inspired. We do believe that it is intentionally structured. And so we should look at it and anticipate to see things brought out in the text. It's like, I think we are, um, we're so limited in our, as we approach God's word, that we can't see all of it at one point. It's like looking at a diamond, but we can only look at one side at a time. Look, taking time to go through and look at the structure of a passage helps us to look at other sides of the diamond, and we come at it from different angles, not because it's saying something different, but because it's highlighting different things and bringing new things out. Malachi's audience, he, he begins then this section by saying that, Malachi's audi- that his audience has one father and one God who created them. There's a lot of debate in, amongst the commentaries about who is being referred to as father here. Some, some take it to be Abraham or Jacob, so the father of the Jewish nation. But I think most likely it's referring to God here because of the parallel question. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And there's also references elsewhere in scripture for both this idea of God being Israel's father, um, specifically in Exodus chapter four, where God says, Israel is my son. Uh, So there's this language of God being a covenantal father to Israel. But also Isaiah 43 um, says that uh, that God has um, created Israel. And in saying that, it's not talking about creating people like he has created all people. It's talking about this particular covenantal relationship that God has created with his people. So I think that the um, audience that Malachi is speaking to here, when he says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? He's not talking about all people everywhere. He's talking about those that are in relationship with God. He's, it has not, do, don't we all, those who have relationship with God, one father in this covenant people of Israel? Don't, isn't there one God that has created us, that called us out of bondage in Egypt? That's who he's referring to. It is this God who has established what marriage is and what it is for. Uh, this is what he says, highlights in verse 15, which we'll get to later. This God that has created them, this God that has called them out, this God who is their father is the one who has instituted what marriage is and designed what it is for. God created man, male and female, 
And he brought the first man and the first woman together in the covenant of marriage. And because he did so, he is the one who defines this institution. He is the one who sets the standard for the world and the world's view, what the world's view ought to be of marriage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. This is where Jesus is answering um, the Pharisees and the scribes who are bringing to him a question about divorce. Let's start in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to Jesus, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? There's a tradition among the Pharisees, a particular group of the Pharisees, uh, that it was appropriate to divorce one's wife for absolutely any reason. There's Jewish commentators that um, even will go to, to lengths and say that you could divorce your wife because she burned the food, because you didn't like the way she prepared a meal. And you write her a, a letter of divorce and it's done. And so this is what they have in mind. Is it, a, is it right, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? What they're trying to do, the Pharisees are trying to pit Jesus against their traditions, against the traditions of the law. And here's Jesus' answer. Jesus says, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Quoting from Genesis 1. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. And then the Pharisees press him further. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away. Note the emphasis there. Why did Moses command this? Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, God established marriage as a union between one man and one woman, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus gives some qualifications to help us understand how we, are to, how we are to come at this idea of the covenant of marriage. But the main thing I want you to see here is when Jesus is challenged with regards to what marriage is supposed to be, what marriage is supposed to look like, what does Jesus appeal to? Jesus appeals to Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus appeals to what God did in creation. Jesus thinks that the standard for marriage is what God says about it, not any of man's traditions. Marriage is, and it must be what it is, because of what God has said. That has to be the standard by which we judge marriage. Any attempt to twist or redefine this institution, and there are um, increasing numbers of ways that we are doing this in our own culture today, but any attempt to twist or redefine it is a direct assault on God. And we need to see that. To, to redefine marriage in any way other than what God says about it is an assault on him because it is the foundational building block of his kingdom. How is God, how did God design the takeover of the world? How did God intend for the world to be filled and multiplied and, and filled with the knowledge of the Lord? It was by Adam and Eve having kids in the covenant of marriage. It was by producing faithful offspring. This is what God had designed. And so any attack on marriage is a direct assault on God himself. There's more to it than that, and we'll get there uh, as well in a minute. 
Malachi accuses Judah of committing covenantal treachery and an abomination. These are strong words. He says that, that Judah has, has dealt treacherously and profaned the covenant of the fathers, and he has committed an abomination. What is this abomination that he has committed? Verse 11 tells us that he has married the daughter of a foreign god. Um, likely what he is referring to here is, again, speaking of Judah as an individual, but for uh, representing all of the people. He's probably referring to a lot of intermarriage that happened between uh, the faithful Jews and the pagan women from the nation, or pagan men and women from the nations around them. Um, we actually have accounts of this in Ezra and Nehemiah, where they intermarried with the pagan nations, and in doing so, were drawn away from the worship of God. Israel's history was plagued with intermarrying with the pagan nations, and it over and over led to their idolatry. There's a couple references in your notes if you want to look those up. Deuteronomy 7 describes, or is where God says explicitly that to Israel, you shall not intermarry with the pagan nations because they will lead you astray. And then in Numbers 25, we have an account of Israel wandering in the wilderness before they enter into the promised land. Um, King Balak wants to, the king of Moab wants to, is scared of uh, Israel because he's heard the stories of how they decimated Egypt. And as they're wandering through, they're approaching Moab, and King Balak uh, says uh, that he needs to have some way to stop Israel. And so he calls this prophet Balaam to come and curse Israel. And Balaam is unable to curse them because every time he opens his mouth, he only speaks what the Lord gives him to speak, and he keeps pronouncing blessing upon Israel. Moses tells us that, uh, that Balaam then presented Balak with a different strategy. And he presented him with a strategy which was to tempt the Israelites to become unfaithful to God by intermarrying with the Moabites. And the, um, the Israelites fall for this. Number 25 describes how uh, the Israelites went after the, um, uh, particularly the women uh, that were worshiping the Baal of Peor, and they began worshiping Baal alongside them, committing all kinds of sexual immorality in Israel's camp, even before in front of the tabernacle, until the, the son of the high priest, Phineas, comes and he skewers a couple that was fornicating in front of the tabernacle because of, um, because of his zeal for God. This is the kind of trouble that Israel got itself into over and over again in its history. Another prime example of this is King Solomon. You're probably familiar with the story of King Solomon. When King Solomon begins, he, he has established his kingdom. God has blessed him with wisdom and riches, and, um, and, and all peoples are coming to him to seek wisdom from him. And Solomon uh, begins to intermarry with many of the pagan nations around him. A lot of it was probably for political reasons. And Solomon's heart is turned, and he begins worshiping these foreign gods along with his many wives, and that is what leads to his downfall. This is all in Israel's history, and Israel has related to that then is the idolatry that, that follows which, for which God takes Israel out of their own land and into Babylon. They've now come back from Babylon, come back from exile, and yet the people again are turning to intermarry with the pagans. You, you, again, you can see an account of this in Ezra 9 and 10 and Nehemiah 13. Let's turn to Nehemiah 13 for just a moment because Nehemiah's uh, response to this is worth, it's worth noting. 
Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah come before, um, a little bit before Psalms, before Job. Nehemiah 13, I'll read in, uh, beginning in verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So you can see how influential these marriages had become on the whole culture. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him the king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? That's Nehemiah's response when he sees this, the very thing I think that Malachi is speaking about here. Malachi rebukes Judah for his return to this idolatrous infidelity. Why, and why is this? Why is this that that happens over and over in Israel's history? It's because marriage is powerful. It's because the sexual union between a man and a woman is powerful. And, and God designed it to be that way. The, 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 what, what marriage does in producing families is powerful. In producing culture is powerful. But it's going to be powerful in one of two directions. It's either going to be powerful in faithfulness to God or it's going to be powerful in unfaithfulness to him. Marriage is not a, a neutral thing. It's either going to be pursuing Christ or it's going to be pursuing some other God. And so this is why Malachi brings this sharp rebuke against Judah. He pleads that God would cut them off from the covenant particularly because they do this abomination while seeking to appease God with their offerings. They seek to appease God. This is what he says in, in the second half of verse 12. The man, may God cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You're going and you're marrying these pagan wives, these pagan husbands, he tells Judah, and yet you dare to come and bring an offering to the Lord. You're deliberately disobeying God and your heart is being led astray and yet you dare to put on this show of holiness and come and offer to the Lord. This hypocrisy uh, is what the Lord hates the most. This bribery of God, this attempt to bribe God, to appease him, to keep him at a distance and make him not see the sin by this show of holiness is what God hates. And what it is, is an attempt to serve two masters. It's an attempt to serve two masters. But Jesus tells us that you can't. You can't serve two masters. And if you see that you are appearing to, if it, if it appears that you are serving two masters, you need to recognize that it's false. You really are only serving one master. And so while marriage is a good, this is a particular exhortation to any singles here. While marriage is a good, it ought not to be pursued. It may not be pursued if it will lead to idolatry or apostasy. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be equal, unequally yoked with one another. Do not go and pursue a, a someone to be your spouse who is not a Christian. The reason for this is because marriage is powerful. 
Marriage either will build incredible things by God's grace or it will destroy everything if it's not submitted to Christ. The love, there's an exhortation here also to married people, I think. The love and the commitment to a husband or to a wife should never usurp one's love and commitment to God. The love and commitment of, towards a spouse should never usurp the love or commitment that you have for your Lord and Savior. In fact, the best way to love and to be committed to your spouse is to love and be committed to Christ first. You will love your wife better if you love Christ more. You will love and submit to and obey and honor and be committed to your husband more if you obey and love and respect and honor and submit to Christ more. Christ has to be first. Malachi also says, so this is the first section, this, this marrying, intermarrying with the foreign, the daughter of a foreign God, and which is, which is both leading Judah astray and is probably also a symptom of Judah's heart. It's a symptom of Judah's heart already going astray. So that's the first thing that, Ma the first charge that Malachi brings. The second is that they have uh, covered the altar of the Lord with tears. Malachi says that because of this, the Lord will dis disregard Judah's offerings. Presumably these are, these tears, what, what are these tears? What are, whose tears are they covering the altar with? Presumably these are the tears of the wives that the Jews would have put away in their pursuit of the pagan women. Presumably, there was a lot of, because of what he goes on to say, talking about divorce, there was a lot of divorcing that happened with a man with his Jewish wife in order to pursue these pagan wives. And so the, the Jewish wives are weeping because of this treachery. And that is what is covering the Lord's altar. Judah has covered the Lord's altar with the tears of those that he has mistreated. And because of this, it has stopped up the altar. It's plugged up the altar. They cannot bring an offering to God and him receive it any longer. And this is because he is witness to the marriage covenant, verse 14. We've seen this before where Malachi represents Judah asking, sort of talking back to God. Um, Judah's, Judah or the priests are like that impertinent child that always asks why and doesn't actually listen to the exhortation, Right? You, you have covered the altar with tears, and I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Why? That's what verse 14 says in the Hebrew. Why? For what reason? Malachi says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth of this covenant. The Lord is witness. He's watching. He's watching your marriage. And when you treat, mistreat your wife, when you betray your spouse, God is the one witnessing. He's the one that is going to bring that charge against you. Because of the way that they have dealt with their wives, Malachi says that the, uh, intimates that the Lord's ears are deafened to the husbands. This is not something unique to the Old Testament. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. We should turn there. If you are a married man, 
First Peter chapter 3, verse 7 should be one of the most chilling verses that you read. Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. That part's not chilling. This is the chilling part. That your prayers may not be hindered. So when I'm not dwelling with my wife with understanding, giving honor to her, treating her as the weaker, weaker vessel, not because she's weak and can't do anything, but because she's like China. She's weaker in that she is beautiful and uh, more easily broken. And I want to cherish her and protect her. If I'm not giving honor to her like that, and I'm not treating her as an heir together with the, in the grace of life that we've been given in Christ, then God's not going to listen to me when I pray to him. He's not going to listen. And that should be terrifying. There's, there's other passages in Scripture that talk about how our sin uh, makes it so that God doesn't hear our prayers. There's Psalms that talk about this. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But this is a very specific thing that Peter is calling out. And I think it's because it's a very specific thing that husbands need to hear. It's a very specific thing that husbands are tempted towards. You are tempted, husband, not to live with your wife with understanding. You are tempted not to honor her. You are tempted not to uh, treat her as an equal heir in Christ. And if you have this sense that you're separate from God, it's like I'm praying and there's a ceiling between me and the Lord. And my prayers aren't getting up to him. You might consider this verse. You might consider that this might be why. And I think there's application here for wives as well. It's not as specific, but it, just because Peter gives it to husbands doesn't mean it has no application to wives. No, wives, you ought to be in a relationship with your husband where you are following him, obeying him like the church does with Christ. And if you're not obeying him, this is just a general principle, if you're not obeying God, why would he listen to you? Um, both Jeff and Brett mentioned this in their exhortations earlier. We ought not to expect God to listen to us if we're not obeying him. In his kindness, he has made it so that if we confess our sins, he forgives us immediately. And that was a wonderful reminder from Brett. God doesn't need time to cool off, to forgive you. This is the grace of Christ. If you're in Christ, you confess your sins and it's done. You don't have to go and serve penance for it. It's done. It's forgiven. And that opportunity then to be in fellowship and communion with your father is there immediately. But our sin does cause distance between God. It makes it difficult for us to pray to him. Not because of God, but because he has chosen not to listen to us. <clears throat> Excuse me, not to listen to us. So God's ears are deafened to the prayers of these husbands because of the way that they have treated their wives. They have covered their garments, which is a, um, the garment being a garment covering something, is a euphemism in Hebrew for marriage. And so there's a play on words going here. Instead of them covering their wives with their garments, they have covered their garments with violence. Verse 16. They have ripped apart what God had joined together. 
Because their hearts were drawn away, because they pursued these foreign wives, they have ripped apart what God has joined together, what Jesus says uh, that man should not separate. The covenant of marriage is not something that people ought to enter into lightly because the Lord is witness to it. He is watching. He is observing your marriage. And marriage is his institution. And he loves it. And he brings great blessing from it. And this is why he hates divorce. Divorce points to and is often a product of the greater infidelity toward him. Now we know, as we looked at in Matthew 19, there are exceptions, and we've taught, you've heard teaching on this in other sermons, there are exceptions to this where there is uh, sexual immorality. Jesus says that it is permissible for there to be a divorce, but that doesn't mean that God loves it. And any, of the, any families that have been a part of that know that it still covers things with violence. It, it's a ripping apart of what God has brought together, and it brings great, uh, great sorrow to a family, to say the least. God hates divorce. He has established marriage as his special covenant, as a special covenant for a man and a woman to enter into to represent Christ and the church. And so divorce is, we mentioned earlier, that any attack on God's institution of marriage is a direct assault on him because he's the one that created it. But it's also a direct assault on him because marriage is supposed to represent Christ and the church. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And so when when there is divorce, it is often a product of this greater infidelity. This infidelity towards the Lord. And this is why then Malachi asks in, or, or says in verse 15, Take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. When he says to take heed of, of your spirit, what he, what, the question you could ask is, like what Jesus asks his disciples, what spirit are you of? Do you know what spirit you are of? Is your spirit in line with God's spirit? Are you in line with the Holy Spirit in your marriage? What spirit are you of? In your marriage, in your conflicts and your resolutions, in your joys and your sorrows, what spirit are you of? Are you pursuing Christ in your marriage? Are you confessing your sins in your marriage? Seeking forgiveness in your marriage? Quickly granting forgiveness in your marriage? Because that's what we see between Christ and his church. We, we are his church. We're gathered here together. And what is one of the first things that we did is we confessed our sins. And how quickly does God forgive that? Immediately. Graciously. Lovingly. Does this, is this reflected in your marriage? Does your marriage reflect Christ and the church in these other things? Husbands, are you leading your wives like Christ leads the church? Are you laying down your life for her like Christ did for the church? In big things and in little things. Are you washing your wife with the word? Again, Paul says this in Ephesians 5. Are you taking responsibility for the spiritual nature of your home? And are you, are you leading in these things? Are you taking responsibility for everything that goes on in your home? For everything that goes on between you and your wife? For everything that she's involved in? For everything that happens with your kids? That's your responsibility. Like everything that we are doing is Christ's responsibility. Wives, are you obeying your husbands like the church ought to obey Christ? 
Are you submitting to them like the church ought to submit to Christ? Are you glorifying your husband like the church should glorify Christ? Are you honoring your husband like the church should honor Christ? Does your marriage reflect the workings of the Holy Spirit in your hearts? This is not because we ought to expect of ourselves to have perfect marriages. Um, Christians, Christian marriages are not perfect marriages, but they are marriages in which sin is being confessed. It's being dealt with, where you're submitting yourself to what God says about marriage, about the relationship between a husband and a wife. That's what a Christian marriage is. It's a testament to the working of the Holy Spirit as you represent Christ and his church. So is your spirit reflecting the Holy Spirit, reflecting God working in your life, or is your spirit at odds with the Holy Spirit? Are you at odds, not with your spouse in your marriage, but are you at odds with God in your marriage? Because God is the one who is witnessing to what's going on in your marriage. Are you agreeing with him? Or are you denying what he says? If he says to you, husband, that the way that you spoke to your wife was mistreating her, was unkind to her, the way that you are lazing around in the afternoon when you get home from work is not taking responsibility for your home. Are you agreeing with God? Or are you at odds with him about it? Wives, if if you are nagging at your husband or um, blaming him or gossiping about him with your girlfriends, Are you agreeing with God about what he says about your marriage? Or are you at odds with him? Take heed to your spirit and do not deal treacherously with one another. Take heed that you do not deal treacherously not just with your spouse, but ultimately with God in your marriage. Now, I want to center in on, as we... Bring this in for a landing. I want to center in on verse 15. Malachi says, or he asks, Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? In other words, God established marriage. This is a rhetorical question. Malachi is not asking because he doesn't know. Did not God make them one? Yes, he did. He made them one. Having a remnant of the Spirit. Again, there's some disagreement among um, commentators about what this means. I think the, the, best, under, the best understanding, I think, is um, to see that he, is, he makes Adam, breathes life into him. Then he also makes Eve. But it's not as though God was maxed out at that point. God could have, in, in one sense, hypothetically, could have given many wives to Adam. He chose not to. It's not as though God is maxed out. He still has a remnant of the Spirit. But he did this on purpose. One man and one woman. You can't go and pursue the pagan wives, is what Malachi is alluding to here. Did he not make them one? Yes, he did. God established marriage. And the reason he did this and made them one is because he seeks godly seed. He seeks godly offspring. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and to multiply even before the fall. This was a command that is given to them in Genesis 1.28. Before sin enters into the world. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And before sin then, the earth would have been filled with godly offspring. Before the fall, if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, which is something that we really can't posit much about, because we ourselves are fallen because of it. But if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, 
what would have happened? They would have filled the earth. They would have filled the earth with godly offspring. But after the fall, this goal has not changed. God still desires godly offspring. He desires you to be godly offspring, and he desires godly offspring from the families that he creates. And of course, this is all in, included in this, is, is um, God's timing in all of that. And he's the, one that, he's the one that creates life. He's the one that gives life in the womb. And so it is all God's timing. But overall, God desires godly offspring. This is what he wants out of marriage. And while covenant, and this is what he wants out of fallen marriages. This is what he expects of his people. While covenant disobedience, whether with God or in marriage, magnifies curses, covenant obedience, and particularly in this idea of, of bringing godly offspring to the Lord, covenant obedience magnifies blessings far more than the magnified curses. Just one place to see this is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> Sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 5. In the Ten Commandments, look with me at verses 9 and 10. This is the, the um, second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And the Lord says, verse, verse 9, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Covenant disobedience to God magnifies curses. Covenant disobedience doesn't just affect you, it affects your children. And the effects of that may vary, but there are effects that proceed onto your children from, from covenant unfaithfulness of parents. But, verse 10, showing mercy to thousands... I'm going to send curses upon you to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. And if you're looking at the text, I want to make sure you, you don't think I'm adding something here. It says, I'm using the New King James here, it says, um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. If you're looking at the New King James, generations is in italics because that word is not in the Hebrew. It's implied, and so we include it in the English trans translations to make sense of it, but that word is not actually there, just like it's not there in verse 10. Showing mercy to thousands of generations. If you want to do a Bible study on that, you can go and look at chapter 7, and, and study that some more. There's more, uh, it's a little bit more explicit there, this idea of thousands of generations. But, but the point here is covenant, Malachi is accusing Judah of their covenant disobedience. And he's telling them that there's curses going to come upon them, that God is going to cut them off from covenant with him because of their disobedience to him. But in the back of our minds, we ought to remember God's promises. God's promises are that obedience to him, including simply the confession of sin. Confession of sin because of the disobedience. If we repent and we confess to him, we ought to expect God to forgive us. In fact, because of what God says in his word, if we confess our sin to him in the name of Jesus, he must forgive us if he's to be true to his word. 
And so there are covenant blessings that far outweigh the covenant curses. Third and fourth generations of curses, thousands of generations of blessings. This is the God that we serve. God continues to seek godly offspring and he will continue to do so until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. His name will be magnified in all the earth as all the nations come to him. Psalm 72 says this, Malachi says this in chapter one, verse 11, alludes to this. In the midst of, of naming the, um, the hypocrisy of the priests, he says, in every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The Psalms, the prophets in the New Testament talks about the nations streaming to the Father. This is, this is God's plan. He desires godly offspring because he is bringing the world to himself. This is only possible, of course, because of the, of the godly seed. God desires godly seed, that's what Malachi says, but this is only possible because of the godly seed that was promised after the fall in Genesis 3.15. God promised to Eve that she would bear, that, that, that there would be the seed of the woman that would crush the head, the, the head of the serpent, that there would be war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but in the end that the seed of the woman would win. And so I, I want you to see that in the midst of these charges that God is bringing against his people, there's a reminder of God's promise. There's a reminder of what God is up to. He seeks godly offspring. And, and when he says this, when he says he seeks godly seed, we ought to remember the promise of the Messiah that, is going, that was going to come, looking forward from Malachi's time, looking backward from, for us of the seed that was going to come who would set everything right. The, that this is right at the center of Malachi's prophecy. God desires godly seed and he's sending him. God desires faithful marriages with faithful children worshiping him according to scripture. This is how he builds his kingdom. This is how the gospel goes forth. And of course, there are lots of people that, be, that come, be, uh, come and be converted and they don't grow up in Christian homes and there's apostasy as well. People growing up in Christian homes and they leave the faith. But generally speaking, God builds his kingdom by fathers and mothers passing on the truths of the gospel to their children, trusting in the promises of God, obeying the Lord, confessing their sins, dealing with one another in, fellowship of the, in the fellowship of the Spirit. This is how he builds his kingdom. And in the midst of that, he hates the hypocrisy of adulterous hearts worshiping him. He hates that hypocrisy. And this is why we confess our sins as we come into his presence every Sunday. He hates the putting away of your wife and by implication of your husband. And I think as we saw, there's application here, not just speaking specifically about divorce, but even within a marriage, that still exists as a marriage, when you put away your wife, when you put her at a distance, when you put away your husband, you put him at a distance, you're practicing divorce. You should see that. And God hates that. He hates the putting away because marriage is so powerful. 
because he loves it, because he loves you in fellowship with your husband, you in fellowship with your wife. And his desire for faithful marriages and faithful children itself reminds us of his grace. His grace is that he sent his son to be that perfect bridegroom for the church. His grace is that he sent Jesus to die for your sins. All of those sins that you've committed against your wife, all of those sins that you've committed against your husband, you can't pay for them. You can't. What you can do is turn to Christ and confess them and agree with him about them and say, Lord, you're right, please forgive me. And God's grace and his forgiveness is immediate. Not because you did it right, not because you're a good person finally coming around, but because Jesus bled and died on the cross and paid for all of those sins and all of those imperfections. It is his grace alone that brings us into fellowship with the Father, and that's why he forgives you. Christ came because we are not faithful. Christ came because we are not faithful in our marriages. Christ came because we are not faithful with our children. Christ came because you are not faithful with your parents. Christ came because you are not faithful with your, with your siblings. Christ came because you are not faithful to him. You can't be. But by the grace of God, you are. By the grace of God, you can. And so pick up your cross daily in all of these things and follow him, not trusting in yourself, not, not even a little bit, but trusting in the grace of God to see you through. This is why Christ came. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for your promises to complete the work that you have begun in us. Teach us to be faithful to you, to love you wholeheartedly. Teach us to be faithful in our marriages and our other relationships and to love you wholeheartedly in them and then love one another more because of it. God, help us to apply these things to our lives as we go out this week. In Jesus' name, amen.